Straight Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of the co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm also the author of Decisive Intuition, the CEO of Invisible Edge, and proud co-founder and co um facilitator of this incredible not-for-profit where we really get to dive deeply into the amazing realms of human, digital, and social transformation. And as we all know, this show kicked off around COVID when Af and I were not satisfied by the conversations that were happening around the world, especially a lot of the media sound bites and all the same stories, realizing how underprepared we were, that we wanted to create a platform to have those conversations. Um, and that's exactly what we're going to get to do today with one of our special guests we'll introduce in a second. But first, I want to introduce our co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, welcome, everyone, for another fantastic show. I, I, what episode is this now? Is it like 69 or 70 or something along those lines? Uh, we've had 70 amazing individuals that we've been engaging with over the last 16 or 17 months. It's been truly phenomenal. And uh, today we have yet another fantastic guest who I actually met a few years back by accident when I was hosting a panel for uh, one of the event companies. Um, I think it was Lisbon. I'm not sure where it was. And then um, Zachary and I got chatting and um, I just was intrigued by his uh, mind and his brain and the way he looks at the world. And I liked his style and his demeanor. And since then, I've been following some of his work and I realized he's just written a book called Inside Money, which is uh, which he'll talk more about. So I don't want to give that away. I'm, of course, the co-creator of this fantastic not-for-profit. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Growth Enabler, a fast-growing tech company, investor myself, and post- um, STL, Straight Talk Live, I've actually gone into the world of philanthropy uh, pretty much all in uh, because I have uh, I think I found my true purpose. And so this has been game changing for me personally and for my family and friends. So with that, I am going to throw the the, the cricket ball over to you because so, the, the, the England and India team is going to play cricket. For those of you who don't know what cricket is, then <laughs> that's a mystery in itself. Google it uh, right now. Google it right now. It's better than pickleball, that's for sure. Um, but uh, ooh, I know. Ball over to you, buddy. Let's let's okay. kick off the Here we go. So um, I'm very excited to introduce to you Zachary Carabell. Zachary is a historian, author, columnist, and investor. Um, he currently, I believe, works for Wired, um, as well as has written for Politico. Um, and I think you're author of three books, I believe, uh, and the latest is Inside Money, uh, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power, which we're going to get to dive in deeply today, um, which we'll talk about sustainable capitalism and different models that we need to be talking about around how we relate to money um, and how that impacts power. So Zachary, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thanks for having me. So just to be annoyingly corrective, um, I don't really work for Wired. I had been writing a column for Wired, but now it's more for Time Magazine oh, okay. and for Politico. Uh, and it's actually 13 books. 13 books. Okay. Unlucky 13. <laughs> a few of them are co-authored. One of them was more like a pamphlet. Ah. Um, there's a partridge. There may be a pear tree. <laughs> well, awesome. So thank you for that correction. That's helpful. And um, let's dive right in. So... Tell us more just about your background. Uh, writing is one of my passions as well. And your particular writing has been uncovering everything from China, U.S., you know, relations and economy to what you're doing now. Um, tell us a little bit more about some of your passions and how you came to this place in your career. So I, I thought I was going to be an academic. I got a Ph.D. In, in the late 90s and then realized very quickly that there was no way either academia was going to accept me or I was going to accept academia. Uh, and so I left pretty quickly and moved to New York to be a writer and was bored being a writer um, in that, you know, there was only so much you can write and you're left with a lot of time staring at cracks in ceilings. It was a little too solitary as a, as a lifestyle, as much as I wanted mm -hmm. to write. And then 
largely because of 9-11, I'd been doing a lot of day trading and, and I was um, dating a woman who was the daughter of someone who created a, an investment firm that was headquartered in the North Tower of the World Trade Center and everybody except for a few people died. And, uh, and her father called me up and said, you should come work for our company to save it. Uh, not that I was going to save it, but to be part of the saving of it. And so I did. And I, you know, I'd done some day trading. I was, I had intern on Wall Street, so it wasn't complete terra incognita. Uh, and I was looking to do something in addition to writing. And I had two conditions at the time. I said, I'm not going to stop writing books. At the time, I was finishing a book on, um, I just finished a book about the presidential election of 1948 called The Last Campaign. And I was writing a book about the building of the Suez Canal because I'd had a Middle East studies background as an academic. So I said, look, I'm not going to stop writing books and I'm not going to take out my earring. And he said, you know, the books, it's fine. You're not playing golf. Whatever you do at night on weekends is your business. I'll get back to you about the earring. <laughs> a few days later, he said, you know, keep the earring. It'll be good. You'll be like, you'll appear to a younger demographic. It'll be good for marketing. So I kept the earring and I kept writing books. And then I uh, married, married the woman. So some combination of nepotism, tragedy, and skill led me into the financial world where I then spent, you know, another eight years at that company. I created a China US investment fund. I went off to China, and mm. created this fund. Um, I started my own hedge fund focused on sustainability for a couple of years, hated doing that, didn't really like being in that world per se, uh, and then worked as a an executive, uh, the head of strategy at a publicly traded financial technology company called Investnet, which is a $5 billion company. And then I kept writing books and started writing things that were a little, at times, more about kind of money and history um, to bring what had become at least two different skill sets somewhat more into alignment, although not not purely and not entirely. And, and some of that was the genesis of this book today. Um, and now I just, I, I write and I do a lot of my own investing. So that's me. No, that's fascinating. I, I, that's really, I mean, right even there. Um, I'm curious, what is the passion around money specifically for you? Because there's so many different ways we can relate and go and get into money. And it means something different to all of us. What has it been for you that's been such a pulse and something that you've followed as a thread for a long time now? Um. I mean, look, in a, in, a, in a capitalist world where a lot of the focus has become more and more and more, uh, I'm certainly interested in, and in fact, the last chapter of the Brown Brothers book is, is when is enough enough? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the irony of being in a world that is money maximizing and asking the enough questions notwithstanding, uh, I'm, I'm deeply interested in that. I'm also focused on attitudes about money, certainly in American society, in American history, um, have oscillated widely between kind of lionizing and celebrating those who've gotten rich to demonizing uh, and questioning. And, and that has been kind of an episodic through line for 200 plus years, sort of the Hamiltonian Jeffersonian split of, you know, we should all just be hardworking, sufficient on our farms versus trading and using paper. It was a was a fissure in our society that has I, essentially continued uh, mm -hmm. in different forms and in different moments. So I've been I'm I'm really interested in that and have been. And then as someone who's been a participant in the financial world, um, the kind of split between the fact that there's a lot of people who work in finance who are just doing necessary work to make sure the financial system functions and make sure that people have bank accounts and investments and retirement. And are doing you know decent work for for decent wages but not spectacular but all the attention goes to you know the hedge funds and the equity firms and the the the, the captains as it were uh many of whom i think live up to their advanced billing as as venal and selfish and self-interested so and i think that's a problem in that they come to define a world that they are actually a very small part of uh, and it's a world, you know, as we saw in 2008, 2009, and as we saw absolutely in every country during the pandemic, you know, a smooth financial system bolstering multiple societies during a pandemic, making sure that our material world does not utterly collapse, even as our, you know, epidemiological world and physical worlds are imperiled, 
was an absolute imperative in the past year and a half. And somebody had to do that work, right? Mm. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it's it's partly where I come at all this. Mm -hmm. So with with the book um, that you've just, um, when was it officially released? Uh, late May of 2021. And uh, you've been on the circuit talking about what, you know, the, the construct of the book, the key findings and so on. But for, for this part of the, the session, it would be good, if you wouldn't mind, sort of giving us a, a whistle-stop tour of what, what is it uh, and what, what can one expect to, to learn from uh, the book. And, of course, it will compel people to go off and read and, and get, get the, the juicy bits and the details. But it would be lo lovely to hear that. By the way, I love the fact that you used a whistle-stop tour as, a, as an invite to me to talk about this book, given that my book about the 1948 election was all about the invention of the whistle stop tour. That's where we got <laughs> that phrase from was that Harry Truman, I mean, other people have done it too, but went on their own train. Um, and when the train would stop at the small town, they'd go to the back of the train, they'd make their stump speech and mm -hmm. the whistle would go and they would continue. Yeah. So as it applies to Brown Brothers, uh, a firm that many people have only vaguely heard of if they have heard it at all. Uh, and of course, that then begs the question of, you know, why are you writing a history of what is, in many respects, an obscure financial firm? Mm. Uh, and, and part of the reason is, one, they're the longest existent investment merchant bank in the United States. They were founded, by their reckoning, they were founded in 1818. By my reckoning, they're really founded when this man named Alexander Brown, the patriarch, uh, flees sectarian troubles in Belfast in 1800, moves to Baltimore. He had been an Irish linen exporter and he becomes in Baltimore an Irish linen importer and brings his four children, mm -hmm. four sons, the Brown brothers, mm -hmm. uh, into his family business as most merchant families did. Most merchant families in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries were family oriented, the Fuggers, mm -hmm. Uh, the Rothschilds, uh, the Barings, and, and largely that was because family was the only group you could trust mm -hmm. if uh, money and goods were being sent across great distances. You know, the age-old problem of how do you know if you're going to send something across the ocean that someone's going to pay for it, and the reverse problem of how do you know if you pay for something that someone's going to send it. And families were one way of, of mm -hmm. dealing with that problem because you might hate family, but they ain't going anywhere. Um, and, and they just are at the epicenter of a, of a series of questions I had. One was, how did money make the United States in the 19th century? What was the role of money in fueling the rise of the United States as a global power by the early 20th century? So how did money make America? And then how did the men, and they were all men, how did the men who made the money of the 19th century uh, construct a global system in the 20th century that in many ways remains the global system we live with today. The World Trade Organization, the UN, the dollar as this currency that lubricates and also in many ways traps the world. Mm -hmm. um, how did that world come to be? And it largely was because the people who made the money of the 19th century then imprinted the system globally after World War II. And then where does that leave us today? And at every juncture of that story, Brown Brothers is um, is is there like Zelig in in the second row back left, looking like a banker trying to avoid attention. You know, Brown Brothers in 1800 for Alexander Brown, and in 2020 with the 5,000 people who work there today, generating two billion dollars in revenue, has never wanted to be in the news. Mm -hmm. um, but in that sense, you have them in. in in that back row being the fulcrum of a lot of crucial events, um, never wanting to be the story, but without whom there is no story. And, mm -hmm. and I wanted to talk about a firm that still exists. You know, living 220 years is interesting if you're them, but it's not the reason to write a book. A long life is not necessarily an interesting life and often is not, but their longevity and the way in which they survived multi-generationally, I think offers us some crucial lessons, um, maybe some examples about what capitalism could be as opposed to a lot of what it has become. Uh, and the fact that they are an afterthought is in and of itself 
part of the problem from my perspective, you know, that a firm that survives and thrives without ever becoming huge, without ever becoming systemically dangerous mm-hmm. and whose ambitions are, are, are more service oriented and modest, we should pay more attention to firms like that, mm-hmm. even if uh, they don't garner the headlines in quite the same way, because that's the foundation of a stable society. Uh, and the fact that we ignore it, um, downplay it, don't really respect it, or the way we at one moment respect, you know, greed is good on Wall Street and the next moment we demonize it, we still pay attention to that as a model. The fact that we don't pay attention to the Brown Brothers of the world in the same way, I, I think is a problem. And by the way, I'm going to finish now. They're, they, they're not just important in the United States. They, in the UK, they become Brown Shipley because the one of the sons of, of uh Alexander Brown was William Brown, who sets up their Liverpool house because they were a transatlantic merchant. You had to have a presence in Liverpool in 1810, 1820, 1830, 40, 50. They were central to the cotton trade. Uh, and that and Brown Shipley then becomes the, the place where the, the training ground of two of the governors of the Bank of England, really important governors of the Bank of England, one named Mark Collette and the other named Montague Norman, who was the governor of the Bank of England during the Great Depression. So they, you know, they influence a lot. Um, not just in the United States. I think that's a, a sufficient whistle stop for the time. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Go, yeah. go on, break. Yeah, I definitely want to click in on some of the learnings that you got from your research and what have you that you want to share. And right before that, I'm really curious. First of all, I think it's an amazing skill that you have around noticing that thing in the background that most people don't notice, right? I think that's something that I wish more of us paid attention to. So I just wanted to call that out. And so what had you able to track that? Because it is something that most people won't notice. And mm-hmm. also I'm curious, what's been the reception now that you've put the spotlight on them and written a book about them, what's been their reception since? Because they've been very comfortable in the back row. Right. I mean, look, this um, this book is not going to be on the bestseller list, but, but nor is it not selling. Um, so it's somewhere in between the two. And it's gotten a lot of attention, I think, relatively speaking, you know, in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Financial Times and um, the Atlantic and Time Magazine and a number of these kinds of shows. It's, you know, it for those who care about this thing, it's kind of in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is certainly true that this is a firm that uh, has tended to believe that every day that they wake up and their name isn't in the news is a good day. And so their initial reaction to the fact of me writing this book was, uh, I think, a profound sense of unease. Uh, and, and because their archives are not at the company, um, I, I didn't need their buy-in to write it. You know, I didn't need their permission. I didn't need to clear anything. Um, but, but I preferred to have their goodwill. Um, and I preferred them to recognize that this was in many ways uh, a very positive take on the company, but not without, you know, substantial call outs for areas where, where they, that family, that company, um, mm-hmm. you know, did things that we would find morally uh, problematic to say the least today. Mm-hmm. So I talk a lot about their enmeshment in slavery, but mm-hmm. you know, anybody who was enmeshed in the cotton trade in the early 19th century was complicit in slavery. One of the reasons I think Abraham Lincoln eventually says you can't have a nation that's half slave and half free is that with an economic system that depends on cotton, or at least cotton is a big fuel to the Northern economy, a system that is half slave ends up being a system that is entirely slave. Mm. So that it's not that you, it's, it wasn't just that it's not tenable as a system. It's that it's, it wasn't true. Mm. Um, half slave meant you were a slave economy. And, and Brown Brothers was totally complicit and a founding member of the Republican Party. You know, they, they hated slavery, but they also were not, you know, bending over backwards to change the system. Um, I write about the ways in which they really draw the U.S. government into the invasion of, and occupation of Nicaragua in 1912 because they were the main creditor to the government of Nicaragua and through this emerging form of, of early American imperialism that we call dollar diplomacy, where, where we use the financial involvement in Haiti and El Salvador and Nicaragua as the excuse to then take over part of the governance of those countries, like if they can't pay their bills. The English did this in Egypt. This was not a 
you know, solely true to the United States. Um, uh, and for eight years, you know, the Bank of Nicaragua is controlled by Brown Brothers. The Nicaraguan currency is signed by James Brown. Um, and I write a little bit about the sort of generic anti-Semitism of the 1920s and 1930s that, that firms, WASP firms like Brown Brothers tended to just, that was part of the culture. And so, you know, if you're Brown Brothers today and you looked at this, I, I liken it to, I live in New York City. So there are people who walk out of the door in New York City in this kind of weird pseudo post-pandemic moment. And all they see is like, oh my God, there's far more homeless people, shootings are up, it's more dangerous, the trash isn't being collected. Uh, and then other people walk out the door and they're like, oh my God, there's al fresco dining and people are out and they're having a great time and, and they're happy and everybody's trying to get laid. Sorry, I know that's a little crude, but it's like, I'm saying there are people who that's what they see. Yeah. And Brown Brothers, when they initially read the book, like all they saw was slavery, imperialism, anti-Semitism, and not the whole other panoply yeah. of right. a firm that tried to serve its clients, that was a, a form of capitalism that's more sustainable. And I think as they sat with the book and recognized that the overall arc really points to a more positive model of elites in society and capitalism, yeah. um, they became far more comfortable with it. Mm. Let's go into um, let's go into the sustainability piece or the fact that a, an organization survived um, two centuries, give or take, which is quite phenomenal. And uh, some of the older financial institutions have been around for uh, a century plus, so they, they're probably not the only one. But what I find interesting is what you alluded to earlier on, where they've got to, there's got to be some sort of an intrinsic culture or a mindset or a way of doing things that's kept them under the radar or sometimes until this book came out, I guess. And they've just continued. And, you know, is, is that because they weren't greedy like some of the other banks or is there a certain ethos that you picked up in their way of doing things that they've maintained from the 18th century? What, what, what's kept them going? What's, what was their sort of secret ingredient or ingredients? By the way, the one way in which people probably would have heard of Brown Brothers without being aware that they've heard of Brown Brothers is there were three partners in the middle of the 20th century who enter, who enter the U.S. government at a very high level of service. Uh, one of whom is Robert Lovett, who's almost completely forgotten, but became Secretary of Defense during the Korean War, helped create the modern American Air Force as Assistant Secretary of War during World War II. Um, Averill Harriman, who's somewhat more known, who had multiple roles in government as Secretary of Commerce, Ambassador to Moscow when the Cold War was heating up administer of all the Marshall Plan aid to Europe, governor of New York, and then one of the architects of the disastrous U.S. policy in Vietnam. But the one that people would have heard of is Prescott Bush, um, mm. who is the father of one president and the grandfather of another. And the, the Bush family fortune mm. comes from Brown Brothers. It also comes from the Harriman uh, Union Pacific Railroad Empire. But, you know, again, this is another example of, oh, right, they've actually been deeply... Right you know, embedded in this system. Um, and I will say, look, I think there's a difference between most of the firms that have survived, uh, almost all of which began in the 1880s, like, you know, Goldman and, and Lehman, which obviously doesn't exist anymore. Some yep. of the British equivalents. Um, that's a full 80 years later than Brown Brothers. Uh, yep. I mean, I, I, there literally is no firm that has survived as long. I mean, the Rothschilds, I guess, arguably have influence and and business interests as a private family throughout europe yeah. uh and they are obviously into you know that's the late 18th century when when amschel rothschild in germany um so i, I think part of it was it, it is deeply imprinted by the founder by alexander brown who in his letters to his children develops kind of a governing philosophy for a company, many of which are total cliches and sound like mm -hmm. throwaway homilies that a first year business student might, might dismiss. Like mm -hmm. your reputation is, you know, hard to, it's hard to make a reputation, easy to lose one. Um, your, your bond is your word. Uh, don't take on too much debt. Uh, the time to take risks is not in the middle of a crisis. Uh, be prepared for, for problems tomorrow, today. Because uh, that's when you can um, uh, be careful about who you do business with. I mean, it's like a you know a laundry list of what would seem to be pretty basic, but whose principles seem to have been completely uh, uh, 
overridden by a, a contemporary capitalism and financial capitalism culture of I, w- I want to make as much as I can when I can. And part of the, the point I make in the book is that because Brown Brothers was a partnership, as most of these firms were until the 1970s, they actually were structurally constrained about how much risk they could take. Right. So today, if you're, you know, if you're Tim Cook, and I'm not like picking on Tim Cook, not that it would matter if I pick on Tim Cook, he's perfectly capable of taking care of himself. Uh, you know, you might do a deal as a CEO or the head of a fund that, that makes you personally $10 million. Mm-hmm. Um, you are highly unlikely to do a deal that will personally lose you $10 million mm-hmm. because the loss will be spread out among shareholders or investors, or at worst, as we saw in 2009, the government, you know, whether it's the Bank of England or, or the Fed. Uh, that would have been inconceivable for Brown Brothers and remains inconceivable because they, they remained a partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and part of what I'm trying to point out about the book, when I talk about sustainability, it's not about environmental and social and governance. It's, it's what form of capitalism literally is sustainable multi-generationally um, mm-hmm. that serves not just the needs of you in the present, but you know your children in the future. And a sense of anything that's going to make you outlandish gains is going to expose you to unbelievable risk. Mm. Brown Brothers made the choice basically almost never to expose themselves to that kind of risk, Mm. which is what keeps them from becoming huge, but also keeps them from collapsing. The firms that survive, you know, the Goldman's or the Morgan's, there's a lot of luck in that because for every one of them that survived, there's like 50 that don't. So you can't necessarily look back and go, look how brilliant they were. Mm Yeah. So, so, thank you for that. Um, I have one more question, which is um, just going back to... um, staying with the Brown Brothers for a moment. The current structure of the, the business, so you said it's about two, two and a half billion in, in revenue. Uh, do you have, are they, billion, yes, in revenue. So you you, you still have people from the family uh, leading the show there, um, or have uh, gone a net new set of people? So that's also what's surprising. The family stops being the governing presence, either the Harriman or the Browns, because they merged with Harriman in 1930. Um, right. By the, certainly by 1968. Um, so Robert Lovett is not a Brown, but he marries uh, into the family. So he's, a, he's, you know, I don't know how you count that, right? He is and isn't of it. Um, mm-hmm. But really for the past 50, 60 years, it's been run by non-family. Right. What's incredible is that the same culture and philosophy has remained embedded in this company. Um, in contrast, let's say to, to Lehman Brothers. But so by the time Lehman Brothers implodes, not only is it publicly traded with a completely different set of incentives, uh, but there are no Lehmans anywhere to be found mm. and hadn't been really since the 1940s. Um, and I think that's also an important aspect. So the, the culture of the firm, you know, this idea of risk being mm-hmm. front and center, that, that being big for the sake of being big has no utility mm-hmm. and no use. I tell this one story. I don't write a lot about the firm post 1970s because there's not a lot to write about. You know, they they do yeoman work. As I said before, they they do a lot of the work in the financial system that needs doing cash management, custodial services, you know, stuff that has to be done, but is hardly going to be front and center. And a lot of it's complicated and arcane. Uh, but they were getting a lot of business in the 1980s because one of the things they had been very good at for years was foreign exchange because they had this London, they Liverpool presence, London mm-hmm. presence, New York presence, Baltimore. And they'd been one of the few firms that kind of harmonized what were things worth in pounds and what was equivalent in dollars long before there was any you know, publicly stated foreign exchange rate. And uh, so they did a lot of business for funds that were buying in, in the United States that were buying foreign stocks for mutual funds. Um, and they, that, that business started booming in the eighties before the eighties, you didn't really have like U S mutual funds buying London listed or Hong Kong listed stocks. And they started doing it a lot and Brown brothers helped harmonize pricing and settling those trades. And they were getting so much business, um, that they couldn't handle it from like Citibank and Lloyd's of London. Mm. And, and instead of what like Goldman would have done at that time, which is they would have had an emergency partners meeting and said, how much 
how many people do, do we need to hire? Where do we need to open offices? How much equipment and technology do we need to buy? Because we gotta we gotta serve these clients in their business. Brown Brothers said we don't want to get bigger. We we can't handle it. You know we're a partnership. We've got forty partners. We're not we can't. And so they basically went to their clients and fired them. Wow. Okay. Sorry, we can't. We just can't do it. You're gonna have to find someone else. Um, and that you know is so contrary to what one should do as a company. Uh, but I think that very attitude of, you know, we know what we can do, we know what we can handle, we know what we can't, and we're not gonna strive, we're not gonna mess with our culture to get 2X the revenue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. That's, that, that's, that's quite a compelling story um, because in the last few episodes, in fact, quite a few of them we've had, we've been trying to debate this inclusive capitalism, conscious capitalism thing for a while. Different people have different opinions. Post the, the COVID situation, as you're aware, has created a um, uh, a cataclysmic event. You know, a, a major event where people are questioning. I don't think we were questioning as much 16 or 17 months uh, 17 months ago. And people have launched books as well. Actually, in that time, uh, we had Bill Davido who came on a couple of weeks ago with his book, The Autonomous Revolution. He said, I've, I've written loads of books. This has done the worst so far because I was supposed to launch it in March then I had to push it and then COVID happened. And now people have got lost because it was all about how um, one should protect themselves against the, the rise of the robots, for example. Um, but again, a lot, of the, a lot of the work that we're seeing, including your work, is about helping us go back to um, what it means to be a little bit more balanced and uh, seek a little bit more equilibrium because I think we've got lost over the years uh, every generation, it's not just a generational problem, with the glory and the noise around growth and explosive growth and exponential growth and accelerated returns and the whole shebang. And maybe technology has got something to do with it or the big tech companies have got something to do with glamorizing it and people have lost their path. It's refreshing to hear what's going on with this company and no doubt they have their dark side too. Uh, but how they've, uh, you know, the, the idea that you say, this is not for us and I'm fine with what I've got. I don't need to have more growth and enough is enough. Perhaps maybe that's that's part of the culture. So with that in mind, because you talk about a lot of things and you've written a lot of books about the different topics, uh, which I want to deviate just for a moment because I do know you, you've got an expansive mind and you can bring this back to the book. Talk us through um, the capitalism generally. I mean, of course, it's had its own um, flavor and it's gone through a few different iterations. But what, what, where's your head at, bearing in mind you've been studying it uh, for a number of years? What is capitalism going to look like tomorrow? And there are many scenarios, don't get me wrong, but what is your view on if you're a betting man, uh, what is the, the the new version of capitalism of the next decade or 15 or 20 years for you? So what I found fascinating in doing the book, and I don't, I really didn't appreciate this before I did it, was um, you had this emerging elite culture in the United States. It had, there was an elite culture that had emerged long before in a lot of other countries yeah. uh, that kind of saw an ineluctable bond between private gain and public good mm. uh, and basically understood intuitively that there's only so much private gain to be had uh, if the public isn't thriving. Mm. Right. That, that you cannot beggar the commons endlessly. And yeah. now in a globalized world of capital today, as an individual or a small company, you can do a pretty good job beggaring the commons sufficiently. Um, meaning it's going to take the commons a long time to catch up with you. And by that time you're, you're going to be in the Caymans. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but the Brown culture really uh, had a, had a capitalism that would have found shareholder capitalism as the definition of capitalism bewildering, you know, it would, mm -hmm. would have found the idea of the only purpose of a company is to serve and, and augment the wealth of its shareholders. That would not have rang true to them, um, nor to many of their cohort. And it, what would have rang true is um, we are doing necessary work for substantial profit. Um, and and therefore, we also have a responsibility to make sure the, the world that we're embedded in, whether it's the city of New York, the country of the United States, or after World War II, the globe, yeah. we have a responsibility to make sure that world is thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the purpose of capitalism. Yeah. That led to the Cold War and it led to a certain 
paranoia about about communism that I I still believe is was completely overblown. But but their lens was this was an antithetical system, and if that system thrived, then capitalism wouldn't. Therefore, you had to construct a world that was favorable to capitalism and, and show people that their self interest lay in choosing capitalism, not just democracy, but capitalism. Um, and more to the point that they had a that they had an obligation to, to be of service to the larger society, uh, even though they were an extremely cosseted, closed, selective elite. Right? This was not. You know, I don't think any of us would have had a seat at their table. Mm -hmm. uh, we would not have been welcomed. We would not have been invited. We would not have been listened to. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm not romanticizing that a world of a closed elite. But it's interesting that the, the the capitalism they created was a much more globally equitable one than the capitalism today, which is supposedly more egalitarian and open. You know, based on education, based on acumen. Right? Anybody can get rich. I mean, in theory, anyone can get rich. Uh, but but their capitalism, which was much more of an elite capitalism, but one which they had an obligation to serve, ended up being a more equitable one in the 1950s, certainly between the middle class and a CEO or the, the gap between rich and poor. Yeah. Um, I, I think the problem of people's, and there's a lot of negativity if you listen to millennials and, and I guess Gen Z, it, a lot of negativity about capitalism, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the heart of the capitalist world in the United States, Western Europe partly because of a feeling it hasn't delivered, right? It, it, it's led to inequality, it's led to clumbering roads, it's led to a totally muddled response to the pandemic. Um, and I think part of the problem is there isn't one capitalism. There's lots of flavors and there's lots of variants, right? We're all familiar now with the problem of variants and, and capitalism has variants. And we have a particular one today that is very shareholder capitalism focused. And I know you guys have talked about, you know, stakeholders, inclusive. I don't like a lot of the jargon around this just because I think it all sort of falls into the minute you've, all this jargon ends up having camps, which are very ideological. Um, I'm just not that interested in that kind of debate. I'm much more interested in what's the purpose of this system and who's it serving. Um, I'm, I'm not as interested in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I don't know that you know, the, the ability, capitalism is simply the ability to augment one's profit with private gain. Um, I, I, I think the problem is when, when the people who do that and the companies that are part of that lose sight of the public good. And, right. and that's as much about culture as it is about anything else. Understood. And, and sorry, Rick, I know you may have a question. Sure. One, one more. Uh, we're going to like this one, which is a bit left field. So thinking about, of course, so many different variants of capitalism. If you look at China, you look at India um, in the East, and then you look at the deployment in uh, Europe. Again, we have our own challenges in Europe right now in the UK where I live. We've come out of Europe, so that's again an interesting discussion itself. And then uh, there's been change in the US from a regime standpoint recently, so time will tell. And of course, the backdrop of that is outside of the pandemic is the, the biggest companies in the world that are controlling a lot of the money and attention are also technology-centric companies. So that skewed the whole sort of balance and diversity of the, the most powerful companies in the world uh, yeah. quite drastically, actually. And time will tell what's going to happen there. I mean, Bezos just went off in his um, rocket ship somewhere uh, yesterday or day before. And so did our, our friend uh, Richard Branson. And, and so good for them. We'll see where that ends up. Talk us through something, um, and I'm sure you'll have an opinion on this concept of digital money and cryptocurrency and this new wave. And think of Brown Brothers for a moment, you know, the more conservative, controlled um, uh, set of people. So let me frame the question in two ways. One is um, you're, you are uh, one of the Brown Brothers, Brown's Brothers, and I'm asking you the question, how would you answer it today with everything you know? And the second is Zachary, who understands much more than what happened with Brown's Brothers and understands the wider piece. So, you know, my, my joke about Brown Brothers, and I say this at the end of the book, but I've said this a lot as I've been talking about it over the past few months, is, you know, if Elon Musk in 2002 had gone to Brown Brothers and said, you know, I've got this really cool idea for an electric car company, and I'm going to use solar paneling to develop battery powers and change the way we store and use electricity, they would have been like, dude, you know, wrong, <laughs> wrong Google. meeting, wrong place. <laughs> um, and, you know, you don't want a world composed only of Brown brothers, right? You, you, you just don't. The, the problem is the ratio, right? You, 
you also do not want a world composed of like VCs in Silicon Valley who are who are expecting a 10 to 100x return on their capital, right. uh, all of whom are looking to fund the next iteration of that. Mm-hmm. And that has become way that has become way too central mm-hmm. uh, to much of the financial system. And then on the flip side, you have all these massive banks, uh, all of which have been so intensely regulated after the financial crisis in 2009 that they can hardly do anything, you know, yeah. other than cover their bases in the, in a regulatory regime. So you you have way too much stasis and way too much risk. Mm-hmm. in 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 the the financial system globally and then you have tech elites um who seem to have decided and this is an unfair generalization that uh, the the tools that they are creating will will sufficiently uh, erode the power of the state and liberate human capacity that, that that they don't feel any obligation to be involved in the public debate about what it is they're doing right. and what the consequences of it are so they've basically punted mm-hmm on the public debate, except to hire lobbyists to make sure that regular, regular, make sure that regulation doesn't destroy them. Mm-hmm. That's not, right. that's not being engaged in the public debate. That's a rear guard action against the public debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and huge private philanthropy is not public debate or public engagement. It's private philanthropy it might do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. So the digital part is interesting because I like I've been involved in and aware of Bitcoin and digital currencies since about 2011 and and have some investments in that, uh, which have been, you know, admittedly spectacular, but not because of any acumen on my part, just because that's a particular wave that I, you know, inadvertently touched on. I think the problem is, on the one hand, it was dismissed by people traditionally as being worthless. Mm-hmm. Um and then also then embraced by a lot of people subsequently as being um, uh, w- limitless. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it is neither worthless nor limitless. Mm. Uh, and I think the problem is, you know, human beings invent money. Money is not an eternal verity. So the idea like, mm-hmm. oh, gold has intrinsic value. No, it doesn't. Gold is a shiny metal that human beings have, have a fixed value to over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that we can't then invent something that governments don't issue, which I think is probably still the greatest threat to digital, is the fact that governments don't like it. And they don't like it because it threatens their monopoly on the issuance of yeah. currency. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, digital currency is 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 like mercenaries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, states don't usually like mercenaries. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem but the idea that human beings cannot innovate and invent and alter their financial systems and have not been an eternal and constant process of doing so uh, i think that's just foolish to dismiss Mm -hmm. and i don't know that brown brothers today would dismiss that they probably just would find it too new and untested to be uh, viable for their risk profile Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. right right Mm -hmm. gotcha so what do you think is going to happen then, given the government and regulators wanting to control the, you know, the space that they're with the mercenaries at the door? If there? they wanted, if they, it, the time to have stopped uh, the, the digital tsunami would have been five years ago mm-hmm. um, when it was just getting big enough for people to realize that it was something, mm-hmm. um, but, but not nearly big enough to threaten systemically at, at $2 trillion. I mean, look, we live in a very big world. Um, and it, you know, it's certainly possible for governments collectively to squash a $2 trillion thing. Um, but it'd be really tough at this point. So they'll try to regulate and the regulations will be incoherent and they'll be confusing and they will take a long time to implement. And meantime, this world will evolve as is evolving with a lot of different variants, um, which is what's happening, right? Between decentralized finance on the one hand, between uh, stable coins and government coins on the other, between the fact that all of our money is essentially digital anyway. Um, yeah. You know, we're we're moving to a cashless world. I know there are all there are issues about the unbanked. Although Bitcoin was initially utopian enough to try to solve some of the issues of the unbanked. You know, one of my friends who was an early Bitcoin apostle uh, grew up in Argentina, and his experience was a government that's continually devaluing the peso and wiping out the savings of the middle class in the process, Bitcoin offered the alternative possibility of a store of value 
that could not be destroyed easily by government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we should forget that was an element just like, yeah, they're Bitcoin bros and people partying in Miami because it's fun, but there was actually people that this was meant to serve for reasons much more elemental. Um, so I think this is going to be with us for a long, I mean, I think this is going to be an ever evolving and, and much more important part of the financial and technological landscape. Yeah. My intuition says something very similar. Um, I want to double click with you on sustainable capitalism. Um, that's obviously one of the main threads you pull on. And as you said, it's not necessarily sustainability in terms of ESG. It's more about legacy, uh, not just the, what can I, how much can I get for myself right now? Can you just double click on that a little bit more about sustainable capitalism and that model? Yeah. So I think part of it, um, you know, it is a different culture, right? It is not a culture of the immediate and endless pursuit of more Mm -hmm. as a scorekeeping of power and success. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it is not true that everybody who's made billions of dollars has done so because they have avariciously desired to make that right. Sometimes it's an out, sometimes it is a derivative of having created a transformative product or industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we could debate about the individuals involved in that, but, there is a cultural approach, which is, um, am I trying to be on an endless treadmill of accelerated growth because public markets demand that or shareholders want that or investors expect that? And look, I, I do not believe that this is back to the capitalism question, right? Um, it, it would be a mistake to, to treat the world as a zero sum world. Um, and, and, and the cliche of an expanding pie and the reality of the past 20 years of the globe having been, uh, you know, even with the pandemic, a remarkable efflorescence of several billion people into a, a material life uh, that was far more secure than, than what most people enjoyed for most of human history, right? I think this has been the emergence of a global middle class um, in a very potent and ultimately pretty positive way. Um, but that still, you know, whether it's the environmental issues that come with who's going to, you know, how much stuff are we going to consume, but more the cultural ones of like that question that we should all be asking when is enough enough mm-hmm. uh, I certainly ask myself this in my own life you know I'm I am uh, the, the beneficiary of unbelievable bounty and fortune relative to most of the human race and I, I don't take that for granted um, I I don't entirely know you know what one is supposed to do with that um, literally but I certainly think about the question and and I do think that there is a culture that we've inculcated in in a lot of capitalism, and this is true for you know Chinese tech companies just as much as it's true for Silicon Valley ones, um, where the, the rationale for more has been lost. You know, more as a maximizer of human uh, fulfillment, security, well-being is is utterly defensible. Um, mm-hmm. More because you know, only more is a is a justification of worth. That's a much bigger problem, and particularly when the more is money, which is an abstraction anyway. You know, what's money for? It's presumably to provide for needs. Some of those needs are pleasure. Some of those needs are leisure. You know, it's not just pure basic needs. Uh, and I think we should all be asking those questions. And I know that can sound you know, hopelessly utopian and idealistic, uh, but I think there's a better chance of, of forcing a change in multiple cultures uh, at, a, at a ground level up than there is in forcing a change in government structures. You know, I think government is is necessary, but not sufficient um, and, and, and cannot be the driver of a lot of these changes. So that's my answer to sustainable. It's a, it's a capitalism that recognizes that there are public goods involved in every private action. And, and, and that those questions and conversations should be ongoing, continuous mm. and explicit. It, it takes, uh, Zachary, it takes a, a bunch of change makers and uh, people who have influence in, in the market or in industry or uh, whatever sphere 
to make sustainable capital capitalism the norm, and it, it'll take it could take generations. Who knows? So there are few. There two part question. One is: Have you seen or come across anyone you feel hopeful about in the industry? It could be a CEO, could be a thought leader that you believe are going to be part of the tribe of individuals who are going to actually be, um, uh, you know, pushing this juggernaut along. No, that's the first part of the question. My second part of the question is really a, a more the dark side of it. You know, you've got the CEOs of the largest banks. Fine, they have their hands tied. But, you know, most recently, the CEO of JP Morgan has been given some more stock. Uh, he earns 30 million a year. He's got, I think he's got plenty of money. And that's really a problem. And he's been in the job for a number of years. You know, there, there is some really bizarre uh, behaviors and actions that come out of the boards of these companies that actually don't do any good. Actually, they they contravene or they contradict the messaging around ESG and ethics and diversity and inclusion and, and so on and so forth. So where do we sit now? I mean, how, how hopeful should we be? I mean, is this all theoretical? But or is Or do you actually believe being at the front and center of it to some extent that there are a group of people who are going to make this change happen? Look, I, I think uh, the Business Roundtable's recent set of letters, of which you know Jamie Dimon has been a part, Larry Fink's shareholder letters as the head of BlackRock, um, much of the language, I think, has been directionally positive. You know, yeah. the, the recognition of other constituents other than shareholders, the, the acknowledgement that that particularly large companies uh, impact so much of human life in so many countries that to just say, not my problem is, uh, is an abnegation of responsibility that is morally untenable and, and economically unsustainable. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think a lot of large companies have been more small p progressive pre-pandemic pre than many governments in addressing a lot of these questions. Mm -hmm. um, the pandemic clearly has changed some of the mantras about what government can do. Mm. Uh, obviously in the United States right now, we're having a big fight over will what was done during the pandemic prove to be um, temporary or systemic in terms of safety nets and direct payments and kind of a recognition that there's a lot more that government can do to channel collective resources to crucial issues that that no company and no market is going to solve for um and uh, you know i'm not sure what way that's going to fall although i would say that it is far more likely to fall in the direction of a, a much more expensive and robust set of safety nets um going forward which i think actually are going to be a good thing particularly if they're less bureaucratic so i i, I think you know, we will not be looking back in 10 years with a definition of shareholder capitalism that looks like the kind of free market absolutism that that, that dictated many boardrooms in the 1990s into the aughts. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think I think we're at the end of that phase, or we're 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 at the waning end of of that definition of capitalism. Um, I, I'm not sure that what's gonna what's gonna happen subsequently will have any coherence in the next 10 years either. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's going to take a while before these things kind of work themselves out. Mm -hmm. Got it. That's good. There's one question that's come on Facebook, totally, totally random question, um, which, which, which is not about the book, but it's about the fact that you've written 13 books. How long does it take you to write one of these books on average? Because uh, you've done 13 of them. It used to take me a lot less time than it did, you know, than it did in the past few years. And partly because I have more professional uh, commitments than I did, you know, when I was writing in the late 90s or 2000s. Um, I mean, I started, you know, I wrote my first book around 1998. And uh, I was more involved with my two sons who are soon to be out in their own worlds. Um, maybe my own urgency changed a bit. Mm -hmm. So there's the question of like, how much time would it take in theory versus how much time does it take? Uh, it, 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 it probably should take about two to two and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, right. But whether or not that's spread out over five years is a whole other question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Got it. And so that's a that's a fair question. Two and a half years is theoretically the right way. And then we have another one. Um, if the people in charge have lost sight of the of the public good, what's the solution? How can we tip the scales uh, in the other direction? Look, I think you know writing a book is partly my way. Having these conversations is partly our way. Everyone who's you know listening or participating or listens to this subsequently. Um, is engaged in that you know, culture and ideas. I, I used to say, if you're in an idea world, um, looking for causality and immediacy is is just the wrong way to go about it. Um, ideas are like pebbles in a pond. You know that it's going to create ripples, and you know those ripples are going to reach the hither shore but you don't know when and you don't know what the effect is going to be and who's going to be receiving that. Mm. So um, idea and culture change is, is inherently impossible to figure out when you're living in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's only clear subsequently mm -hmm. and it's unsatisfying politically mm. and it's unsatisfying for a corporate balance sheet because it's, it's not something you can measure now. So to the question of what we can do to tip the scales, I think all of these conversations and these things that are moving and happening are part of the scale tipping. It's just not viscerally satisfying while it's going on because you can't prove that it's happening. You can't really see that it's happening. You might think you feel that it's happening, but you also could be you could also be fooling yourself thinking that it's happening. Um, but I am I'm, I'm 100% sure that govern that there is no force of power that can make it happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I want to I want to pick up on that thread right there of like when you're in the flow, you can't always see the river, but when you look back at you know on the uh, land, you can. And and back to your point, uh, we just have a few minutes left here, but your previous book, uh, Superfusion, I think you wrote it in 2009 or so, and you talk about how China and America became one economy and how that has really impacted the whole planet. That was written in 2009, you were seeing that, and then at that point in the river, now that you look back at the river, what are you seeing today in terms of the China-US and its impact in the economy now? So look, um, the weird thing that's happened in the past couple of years is as relations have all but fallen apart when it comes to the political and diplomatic goodwill, um, the economic intertwinement remains massive and growing. Um, which doesn't make a lot of sense, meaning it is completely discordant relative to the narrative of, of Cold War and conflict. And we, China still owns a trillion dollars of U.S. debt, and there's still almost a trillion dollars of cross-border trade in one form or another between China and the U.S., and that doesn't even get into the whole China and supply chain. And yeah, I mean, it is likely that that, th that, will, that will wane over the coming years and not wax. Um, I would say the one thing that I, you know, and I do a lot of writing about this and people can look it up because it's easy to Google my name, um, meaning my name is, you know, it's not Joe Smith. And uh, I, I think it's a, a, a sadness and a mistake, the degree to which both China and the United States have seen a vested interest in treating each other with antagonism. Um, I think it's a lost opportunity mm. of concord or rather, it's a lost concord, even in the midst of discord. Um, and and I, I don't think the die is totally cast, but it's pretty close to being cast. You know that we're in a, a period of, of intense sort of competition slash animosity. Um, and and I think that's you know yet another moment in human history where human beings have have failed to rise to the the magnitude of the moment. Um, and you know I wish. It had been otherwise, and I think it, it, it could have been, and it probably still can be, mm -hmm. but fully understanding the degree to which the economic intertwinement makes this one of the weirder competitive relationships ever. Mm -hmm. when, the, when the United States and the Soviet Union started you know, bristling in the 1940s and into the 50s, uh, there was like $100 million of, of economic relations between them, and even inflation adjusted, that was nothing. So they could afford to be ideologically adversarial mm -hmm. and diplomatically um, antagonistic because the stakes were purely that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of a Cold War with the kind of economic intertwinement between the United States and China is, is a very odd one mm -hmm. for both countries. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yep. Super fusion, super um, confluence for sure. Yeah.
Yeah, that's not going anywhere. Thank you for making that point. Uh, Zachary, it's been really a joy to have you on our show. Um, I feel like we could do this another hour or two hours easily. Um, would love to break bread with you sometime in New York City, gluten-free. That would be great. And um, just where can people find out more about you and your work? Where should they go? You know, I have a website, uh, ZacharyCarabell.com, which you know took me a long time to figure out the URL for. Uh, and I also recently founded something called The Progress Network, which is theprogressnetwork.org which is a, a gathering right now of about a hundred minds, people, idea people who are in sensibility focusing a little bit more on what could go right in the world and not just relentlessly focused on all the things that are going wrong. Mm -hmm. Even though many of them are focused on what's going wrong, they're just focused on what can be done to make them go right. So check that out as well if you can. That's great. And we actually would love to get your links and put them on our, our speakers page for you. We'll set up a profile for you great. and get all of your links there. So our our Straight Talk libraries can find you directly that way as well. Perfect. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your uh, stimulating perspectives and, and research and making the world a better place through your lens. Thank you. Thank you yeah. both for having me. You're welcome. Perfect. Very much. And for those of you tuning in next week, we have a very special guest, Peter Cadens of the cannabis industry, who talks about winning at cannabis at an unfair game and talks very just straight up about how even being white um, has given him the privilege that he looks back on. How can he pay that backward and forward now where if he had been of a different color, he'd probably be in jail or uh, had, had been stopped in this entrepreneurial journey in the world of cannabis. So it should be a really riveting show next week. So thank you all so much. Keep straight talking out there. Tune in to you next time, next week. Thank you.